Lord, thank you for dying for us. But not only that, thank you for rising from the dead so that we can have assurance that you are who you said you were. Lord, we look forward to the day when we will eat with you in the kingdom that's here on a new earth, made new. Until that day, Lord, we will proclaim what you've done. We will love as you loved, as your people in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Stories of sacrificial love inspire us. In the 1800s, a missionary from the London Biblical Society, the London Missionary Society, felt God calling him. His name was John G. Patton. He was already busy teaching in the church, serving the poor and needy of London. But he felt that God was calling him to something. He had heard stories of an unreached people group on some remote islands in the Pacific, the New Hebrides. The trouble was, several missionaries had already gone there and paid so with their lives. You see, these islanders had no interest in outsiders. In fact, they were known to kill and eat their enemies and sometimes their own people. But John Patton felt called by God to go and bring the good news to these people. He had experienced this love of God from himself, from God himself. And he could do nothing but go and tell these people what Jesus did. So, despite the pleading cries of those who said, why go, why waste your life, why die? You're doing so much good right here, they said. He went. And those words were largely right. It was costly. Within a year, he had lost his wife, a newborn son, to the flu. And he himself had nearly been killed numerous times. But he didn't give up, and he trusted that God had called him to this purpose. And after 20 faithful years, the entire island came to Christ. There's no place that the love of Jesus can't go. The command to love as he loved is for each of us. So now, let's look at these verses in 1 John as we study what it means to love as he loved. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. If anybody needs a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have plenty of Bibles that we would love you to take with you as our gift to you. First John, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, read, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you've had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light, but hates his brother or sister, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm going to take these verses a little bit out of order tonight to go through them. First thing that is really clear when we look at this is if you hate, you are in the dark. 
to John, hate is neglecting or failing to love others. We've seen how John contrasts things in these dualistic frameworks, light, dark, love, hate. That's how he sees this, as an opposite of love. And then he gives a specific example. He says, if we are in the light, yet hate our Christian brother and sister, we are in the darkness presently. We are living a lie, he's saying. He goes on, continue, talking about walking in darkness, to say, there's, in verse 10, he says that there is no cause for stumbling in the one who does love. So conversely, the one who hates causes others to stumble. So, if you're causing somebody else to stumble, John's saying we are hating them. Usually when we think of hate, though, we, we use the word a little differently, don't we? We tend to think of, like, murder, war, uh, things like that, right? That certainly is hate, but John wants us to see how smaller things, like causing others to stumble, is hateful too. And what he means by causing someone to stumble is plain. If you, it means to put someone in someone's way so they trip and fall, right? Metaphorically, in the Bible, this stumbling means you're causing someone to fall into sin or to tempt them with seduction or to fall into idolatry or fail to act in wisdom. So often, when I, when I think about this in context, um, I'm reminded by the way we've been wired in social media. So often when I scroll through Facebook, I wonder what reason or for what purpose people post certain things. I think we really struggle with how to love and word online. We struggle with that. And so, consider what John's definition of hate is here. So, before we make quick statements or blanket statements to cover what might really be true, consider our intent. Am I really saying something that is good for my Facebook or online opponent? Am I acting in love, or am I just trying to appear clever to cause someone shame and get a few likes? Slow down. Think. Do my words or actions bite? The idea of causing another to stumble is rooted in the Mosaic law. It's used, for example, in Leviticus regarding the treatment of those who are most in need. So go ahead and flip to Leviticus 19. That was funny. 13 through 14. It reads, Do not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages due a hired worker must not remain with you until morning. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But you are to fear your God. I am the Lord. In 1 John, we're given further description of what this, this hatred towards other believers specifically is. He says that the one who hates walks in darkness and doesn't know where he's going. He not only causes others to stumble, he stumbles as well. The darkness, we are told, has blinded his eyes. History has shown us that if you pile up enough stumbling blocks, you have made a grave. John Stone Street, a political and social commentator, often puts it this way. Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. It is an uncomfortably sobering fact to know that despite the rapid modernization of the world and all the grand promises of ease, comfort, 
and endless surplus that new technologies has brought us. Despite all those things, the last hundred years or so have been the most bloody in the history of mankind. It is not even close. The casualties of conflict, war crime, and genocide are in the hundreds of millions. From Germany to Turkey to Burma, Somalia, Uganda, Russia, on and on, we see how blindness that comes from hatred is apparent. It's easy to dismiss such evil as out there or to not even want to think about it, that it could never happen here in our own homes, in our own country, in our own communities. Yet the capacity to do great harm, to hate, is in each of us. The great evils committed throughout history may have had a charismatic leader associated with them. But remember that the volume of damage done was accomplished by the collection of individuals who hated a country, a people, a color of skin, or a religious affiliation. They, they had something that caused them to view their brothers and sisters as something less than human something less than one created in the image of God. I wish it went without saying that our enemy is not our neighbor or a political party or a different religion. The real enemy is twofold. It's the evil one. It is Satan, right? And he wants us to bow at his feet. He wants us to bow at his feet. But it also is the sin that you and I wrestle with, the hate that we're capable of doing. And so we need to deal with this sin and this darkness in ourselves. We're not exempt from the risk of hate and causing great harm. Many of us can look back in our lives and see what hate has done. It hurts. Those aren't pleasant memories. That is why God is so insistent that we come to him to deal with our sin. The Old Testament was insistent. Jesus was insistent of this. The apostles were Paul was insistent. James was insistent. And John, in his letter to us, is very insistent on that as well. And God has provided for us a way to deal with that sin, to get fixed, to make it all right. We are broken, but he doesn't leave us to wander in the darkness. He has offered us love instead of hate, and his work of salvation that he did for us while we hated him. The light shines in the darkness, and the dark cannot overcome it. Jesus offers us another way, love. And he demonstrated what that looks like for us. Let's look at verses 7 and 8 and kind of dig into what Jesus' love looked like a little bit. First John. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Here John is telling us that he is not writing us a new command, but an old one. Then it seems he changes his mind and says, I'm writing you a new one, right? It kind of feels a little bit funny on first impression. So what is it? Is it old or new? What are you doing, John? So the word at the beginning of verse 8 in the Greek is palin, and it's translated here as yet. I, I think there might be a better way that at least helps me understand what's going on in my own mind a little bit. Sometimes we, we can use that 
word palin and translated as on the one hand or on the other hand. And so it has this connotation of, not necessarily of contrast, but adding to what's been said or further revealing what was once said. And that, in that sense, we see that how the old command is made new or further revealed in the sense that Jesus demonstrated it for us. He brought new and refreshed meaning to that old command. And that old command that he is speaking of here is to love one another. Take a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 34 through 45. Here John says, I give you a new command. Love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. So we see how Jesus himself declared the new command that was old. So let's look at how Jesus demonstrated this old command made new. Because Jesus was the Son of God, there's at least five ways that I can see in which he made the command to love new. The first one is in the way he loved others. We see how he loved his friends, Martha, Mary, Lazarus. We've seen how he loves his mother, the disciples, the lost, even hostile Jerusalem, who he cries out to and wishes to gather them in with loving care, despite the Pharisees' intent to kill him. And even while he was captured and he was betrayed, he sought to love them and prayed, Lord, forgive them for what they, they know not what they do. And so Jesus really demonstrated this love for others. He also demonstrated a special love regarding the fellowship that he had with God. He frequently prayed to God, thanking him for the fellowship that he had. And through the Holy Spirit, he opened up fellowship for us with God. The third one is he taught his disciples to love just as he loved them. And he demonstrated that in humility. Think of washing feet. Jesus the King came to serve and not be served. And so we have this sense from Jesus that this idea of love isn't, isn't us being great over others, but us setting ourselves underneath other people. We also see in his willingness to sacrifice his life for others, the righteous for the unrighteous. It is new because he, the sinless Son of God, did it. And maybe most importantly, the fifth one is his work of salvation, the power to regenerate the lost. Take a look at these five things. Now notice what it says in verse 8. It says, Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In him and in you. That's us. This is the short list of what it means to be true in Jesus. What is true about the love Jesus had is true for us as well. We are to love Jesus as he loved. But remember that he didn't just tell us to do that without giving us help to do that. The Holy Spirit, our advocate, was given to us to turn our love from ordinary love into spirit-empowered love 
looking back at the times in my life when I was feeling the most down under, depressed, or purposeless, or maybe just worn out, I realized it was those times where I wasn't really doing what I was supposed to be doing. I wasn't using the gifts he was given me to love with. And maybe I was disobeying him in his word regarding that. We're told to use what we've been given. It was times where I was self-absorbed, self-interested, and God felt far away in those moments. The first few years after college were hard for me in that regard. I was doing engineering work, which was good work, but I really wasn't using what, the gifts that God had given me, at least as I should, should have been using them. But in contrast, think about how amazing it is when you're in the midst of doing what God has called you to do, even when it is scary, even when it's uncomfortable, even if it means giving more than we seem we have to give. Who around you is in need of Christ's love? Is it someone in your family? Is it a coworker? Is it the homeless guy on the way to Walmart when you drive past him? Or maybe it's to some 500 homeless children in the St. Cloud area. If you're truly walking in the light, God has already impressed on your heart where you should be loving. Do not ignore those impulses deep in your conscience to love or meet need when you see it. That's the Holy Spirit at work. That's his impression upon you. Don't miss that opportunity. And when we do that, you experience what Paul is expressing in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through chapter 12, verses 2. He says there, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And in light of that, this is what he says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is. So in light of what God has done for us, let us love as he loved us. Let us seek to save the lost, the broken, the oppressed. We have no reason to fear. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already coming. You see that in verse 8. The light is here. It's progressing. It's strengthening as the day comes nearer and nearer. The darkness will not overtake the light. Jesus is coming back. And the safe place, the safest place any of us can be is exactly where he wants us, in that will to love as he loved. There's no place his love cannot go. It extends beyond the context of First John's letter, which is to Christians first. But John's aware of much more than this, that limited love. We extend his love to all. We all know those verses in Matthew 5 on the Sermon of the Mount. We've heard them before, but they're helpful to be reminded of. Chapter 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on evil and the good, and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're called to love as Jesus loved. That's hard sometimes. I told you that story of that missionary to the New Hebrides um, because it has some, some meaning to me personally and to some of my friends. But let me tell you what his explanation was, John Patton's explanation that he wrote down for what he did and why he did it. These are his words. He says, let me record my immovable conviction that this is the noblest service in which any human being can spend or be spent, and that if God gave me back my life to be lived over again, I would without one quiver of hesitation lay it on the altar to Christ, that he might use it as before in similar ministries of love, especially amongst those who have never yet heard the name of Jesus. Nothing that has been endured and nothing that can befall me makes me tremble. On the contrary, I deeply rejoice. When I breathe the prayer that it may please the blessed Lord to turn the hearts of all the children to the mission field, and that he may open up their way and make it their pride and joy to live and to die in carrying Jesus and his gospel into the heart of the broken heathen world. Our mission field is here. Right now, in this place that we are, it's at home with the kids, it's at the office, the workplace. And if it seems that you are called to some faraway place, don't ignore that either. I told you that story because even though John Patton is long dead now, his story in the face of great evil and against great odds has inspired many. I read his autobiography in college, and it deeply moved me. I borrowed that book to one of my best college friends named Tyler. He read it, and uh, it planted a seed. He graduated with a chemical engineering degree and found a very good job in Michigan. He read the book, The True Story, of John living with full dependence on God while loving those who tried to kill him. That story couldn't, wouldn't go out of Tyler's head. It wouldn't go out of his heart. A few years later, Tyler was married, and now he and his wife are missionaries in Indonesia, seeking to bring Muslims to Jesus and save women from being trafficked. He's seen that example from John Patton and thought to himself, why not me? I am a man of unclean lips, but Lord, say the word and I will follow you in obedience. That same call goes out to all of us, whether we're here, whether we're far. Why not me, Lord? The Holy Spirit works through love in ways we can never fully know. But know God is faithful. Justice is his. We can trust him. Our job, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is to love as Jesus loved. Let's pray.
Lord, I am thankful for faithful saints that have gone before us to demonstrate what it looks like for us to walk in love. I'm thankful for, for men like John Patton, George Mueller, and so many others. Lord, you have shown us what it looks like to walk out in love through your own life. You've given us the example of how to love others, how to have fellowship with you, how to care for people even when they don't want us to care for them. Lord, your love is so good. There's nothing that can stop it. You've given us the Holy Spirit, Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would help us follow you, not be afraid. Give us the strength to do what is right in the face of all odds. Lord, we know that those moments are scary sometimes. It's hard. It's hard sometimes, Lord, where you get afraid. And so we ask that you would comfort us, that we would not be afraid, that we would trust in you, that we would lean on you with all that you've given us. Lord, we are thankful for your hand. We are thankful for your spirit. We are thankful for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.